Well, well of life, it's wonderful to be with you again in your homes. Um, as I said, I can't wait until we can gather together, and, and maybe that's not going to be too long in the future. But I have, I have a word today that really I, I'm, I can't wait to share with you in many ways. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult word in some ways, but something that's really important. It's called, the title of my preach is The Power or Power and Powerlessness. Power and Powerlessness in Partnering with the Holy Spirit. Um, earlier this year in January, it seems like a lifetime ago when we could still fly around and, and be together with other people. I was in India, I traveled there with Finney, and uh, I, I take this time seriously because I know that the leaders that are coming together have, um, have come there at, at great expense of time and um, actual finances as well. Some of them travel four days one way by train to be there, and so it's a weighty thing. And as I was waiting on the Lord, I felt Him say to me that I should preach a series on partnering with the Holy Spirit. And one particular passage came out to me from the book of Acts, and that was from Acts chapter 16, which I'm going to preach upon today, on, on this whole idea of both that partnering with the Holy Spirit involves moments of power and moments of powerlessness. And it was particularly relevant because in India, there is this growing hostility towards minority religious groups, and Christianity is no exception. And I'd heard about some of the persecution that had gone on, and I preached this message, and we responded in what is really the only way to respond to these moments of powerlessness, which is to worship the Lord. And as we're worshiping, Stan Lee, who's partnering with us in India, brought this couple out, Paul and Prathiba Stephen, and uh, told me the story of how, just a short while before, um, some a group had come into the church and beaten his wife up when he wasn't there. And then later on, when he went to go find out why they had done this, they beat him so badly that he ended up in hospital and needed surgery on his eyes. One eye has been restored, the other one was still recovering. And so we huddled together as this group of leaders in India. And uh, as the worship was going up, we added our prayer for this couple into that and, and our tears as well. And this is incredible mix um, together of us standing before the Lord God Almighty, the one who is all-powerful and feeling particularly powerless and in that moment. And Luke was one of the guys that was with Paul as he came into the city, and he records what took place in Acts chapter 16, and he kind of sets the scene like this, that, that Paul has been commissioned by a king to carry this message to this great city of Philippi. And uh, the idea is that the, the, the citizens of the city have rebelled against the rule of the king. And Paul now, as the messenger of the king, comes with this incredible message of hope and of redemption that the king has made a way for the people to be pardoned, that the rebellion can be forgiven and they can be restored again under the um, benevolent and loving leadership of this king. But the leader of the rebellion is fighting against them, seeking to confuse their message and um, stopping that... Um, that message going out there so that those that have rebelled against the king can be restored. And Luke continues the story in verse 16, and he says, One day we were going down to the place of prayer, and we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God and have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day. And so Paul got so exasperated that he turned around and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. 
The whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews. And shouted, they shouted to the city officials, they are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape, and so the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. There's something powerful about this passage because it's simple yet profound, and it's showing us that there is a power and a powerlessness in partnership with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, with just a command, Paul causes the demon to set this woman go, to, to set her free. Just, just a command in the name of Jesus. How powerful is that? And then from verse 19 onwards, there are the words of powerlessness that mark the text. Grabbed, dragged, mob attacked, stripped, severely beaten, thrown into prison, feet in stocks. And there is this, this um, meeting together of power and powerlessness whenever we partner with the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure the church was ever called to wield worldly power, whether it's political or financial or, so or social. I think of Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, when they healed the lame man that was waiting at the gate, beautiful, and, and they came to him and he asked for money. He said, silver and gold we don't have. They, they weren't wealthy. They didn't have the means to change this man's life with financial wealth. And later on in the next chapter, they were brought before those that had the real political and religious power, the Sanhedrin, who threatened them and warned them. And so we see a picture of the early church, even though it had, been, had 3,000 added to it and that one day was still not the church that wielded the worldly power. It reminds me of the story of St. Thomas Aquinas. He was once brought before Pope Innocent II, before whom was a large sum of money spread out. And the Pope said to Aquinas, he says, you see, the church is no longer in that age in which she said, silver and gold have I none. True, Holy Father, Aquinas, uh, Aquinas replied, but neither can she any longer say to the lame, rise up and walk. See, while the church and believers are not called to exert overt worldly power, we are without doubt to be agents of the Spirit's power in the spirit realm. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, one of my favorite verses it says, Luke writing, he says, and, as you, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. The Greek word there is dunamis. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. And I preached last week on waiting for the power, on the fact that the same Holy Spirit that was within Jesus that enabled his miraculous ministry to take place is within us if we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, ordinary men like Peter and John and Paul and Philip, the deacon evangelist, um, perform these miracles. <clears throat> they don't seem ordinary to us now in hindsight, but these were fishermen. These were um, tax collectors and, and, uh, um, and just ordinary men and women like us. Acts, 6, verse 7, Acts 8, verse 6 and 7 says, The crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. And Jesus sends us out specifically to exercise that power. We are placed here in the city. You are placed in your neighborhood. We are sent into the nations in the same, with the same instruction that Jesus gave his first disciples in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8, when he commanded them to heal the sick 
to raise the dead, to cure those with leprosy, and to cast out demons. Give us freely as you have received, Jesus said. The Jesus who went around doing good, who cast out the demons from those that were sick, was also crucified. And it's specifically because we do not occupy the bastions of worldly power that there is also a powerlessness in this world. Jesus warned us that in this kingdom, um, that this kingdom of his would not be built on the power, the way that the world sees power. In fact, in John chapter 15 and verse 19 and 20, he warns his disciples and he says this, listen to these words, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. This is an uplifting message, hey? Verse 20, he says, since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. Peter writes in his first letter in chapter 2 and verse 20 and 21, he says, but when you do good, he says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, to do good and to suffer and endure, to this you have been called, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This may feel like a time of powerlessness to you. I have to admit there have been times in the last few months when a silent anguish has almost come up and overcome me. The world has been constrained against this world because of the pandemic. Stay home, do this, don't do that. Many people, friends of mine, have been affected by the economic impacts of this pandemic. They've lost their jobs, they've had their pay cut right down, and it feels like there's nothing they can do. Some have to go back, leaving Dubai, to go back to their home countries. It's not their first choice. It's not what they want to do. They, they are being led almost against their will at this time. They are powerless. And even this week, we were gut-punched by an event that has actually occupied the conscience of the world, the killing of George Floyd. I can't breathe, he said over and over again, as those that were assigned to protect him used their power to suffocate the life out of him. And he has become a symbol of the abuse and the corruption of power everywhere, whether it's in India or South Africa or China or America. It left many people feeling like we can't breathe. We're powerless. Where is this coming from? How can we not get over this? And then the other night I spent too long watching videos of the protests against that injustice in America that have turned into riots in one American city after the other. Powerlessness is on display as hordes burn, loot, vandalize and destroy and hurt others all around them. There are times we come face to face with the stark reality, friends, that we are not in control. We look around, where, where can we go that we can find ourselves a place where we can be in control? I started reading a book this week that um, Burtis recommended to me. Most of you will know Burtis. He was on eldership here at Will of Life, and he's now leading the church up in Russell Kamer. And the book's called Letters to a Young Pastor. And you might not think that I'm a young pastor because I'm 50 years old, but the guy that wrote the book is 75. And uh, he had spent half a century in ministry, and so by comparison, relatively speaking, I'm young. And so I took the posture of learning, and boy, have, have I learned as I've read this book. It is full of winsome, witty, and at times totally disarming um, stories of his time in ministry. In one letter, he spoke about the dark night of the soul 
those moments where we are so evidently out of control, we're so evidently powerless that we wonder if God is even there. In one letter, he spoke about a woman, a missionary by the name of Helen Rosevere, who had come to speak at a meeting that he had, he had attended. She passed away in 2016 when she was 91 years old. And there was a powerless in her story that shook me and uh, shocked me. And actually, I'm still a bit disturbed by the implications of what she shared. It, it continues to resonate inside of my heart. Helen went to work as a missionary medical worker in the Congo in 1953 when she was 28 years old. The Congo, seven years later, became independent of um, Belgium, which had ruled over it. But in 1964, a, a violent civil war broke out in that land. And all of the missionary hospitals and facilities that this movement that Helen was a part of had built were destroyed. And she was taken captive with 10 other Protestant missionaries and put under house arrest. And she describes what happened to her after she was captured. She says this, they found me and dragged me to my feet and struck me over my head and my shoulders, flung me to the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouth full of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed. My captors were brutal and drunken. They cursed and swore. They struck and kicked. They used the butt end of rifles and, rub, and rubber trenchers. We were roughly taken, thrown in prison, humiliated and threatened. And then on October 29, 1964, while in captivity, Helen Rosevere was brutally raped by her captors. She later recounted, on that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, Terrified and tormented, unutterably alone. I felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. Helen said that in the darkness of the soul, she sent the Lord saying this to her. And this is what shocked me. You asked me, when you were first converted, for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Is that God allowed powerlessness shocking to you? Is Jesus' crucifixion shocking? In a little while, we're going to break bread and we're going to remember the body of the only innocent person that ever lived that was beaten and hung upon the cross that we might have life. We're going to drink of the cup of his shed blood of the only innocent person that ever lived. Does it shock you of the God-allowed powerlessness that Jesus endured? And what about Paul and Barnabas? Seized by an angry mob, dragged away like Helen was kicked and beaten as they were dragged before this unjust authority until they were brutally beaten with wooden rods. Heads back, legs bleeding, and then cast into a stinking dungeon where the light didn't shine anymore. For Paul and Silas, the power of the Holy Spirit, that only moments before that experience, the casting out of that demon, had given away to powerlessness. How do the saints of God respond in moments like these? How did Paul and Silas respond? How did Helen Rosevere respond? And friends, these questions are so important. 
because there's a part of us that, that wants to recoil at the, the thought of being put in situations where we're powerless, whether it's extreme situations like these that I've spoken about, or situations where our reputation is threatened, or our financial stability is threatened, or, what, or our, our family harmony is threatened. We find ourselves saying, God, I don't want to be in those powerless situations. Let me step back. But Jesus didn't step back. Paul didn't step back. Helen Rosevear didn't step back. She writes that after God spoke those words to her, she said she received an overwhelming sense of privilege. That Almighty God would stoop to ask me, a mere nobody in a forest, a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something that he needed. I wonder if Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas rather, had a similar encounter with God in that pitch black darkness of that dungeon. And they showed us how we respond to powerlessness. When we faced in that situation, we need to respond with worship, like we did that day in India, as we worshiped together with those pastors that suffered there. In verse 25, it says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. In Isaiah 6, the prophet faced his own moment of powerlessness. His cousin, the king, was dead, and it felt like everything that he had hoped for had fallen apart. And the scriptures tell us that he has something of an open vision and he sees God Almighty seated on his throne. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. The robe, the train of his robe speaking of his power. And the living creatures cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What Isaiah got that day, what Paul and Silas got that day as they worshiped in the cell, what Helen Rosevear received as she interacted with God at that moment was perspective. God is on his throne. Our sufferings and powerlessness don't change God's position. I went and watched an interview from 2011 with Helen Rosevear. And uh, she said that when those awful moments in the war came, she thought that this had gone too far. I can't accept it. It seemed the price was too high to pay. And she said God came to her and turned the question around. Turned it from, is this worth it? Is it, is it worth this to, am I worthy? Am I worthy, asked God. And she said, of course, Lord, you are worthy. And that's why Paul instructs us in the moments of difficulty and powerlessness and suffering to keep our eyes on what is unseen, not what is seen. For what is seen is temporary, while God establishes what is permanent. When the world reminds us that we are powerless, we need to worship the God who is the Lord Almighty. We need to worship the God when the words of the, of the psalmist, Psalm 45, says, is forever and ever the God whose scepter is a scepter of uprightness, the God who has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Secondly, we respond to moments or seasons of powerlessness by standing, or in the case of Paul and Barnabas, their feet in chains, sitting in faith. Verse 26, it says, suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Friends, when we face these moments, we have to leave room for vindication. We have to leave room for breakthrough. We have to leave room for God's immediate and overwhelming care for us. So often, in these moments, we want to leap up and defend ourselves. I know that's my natural inclination. I want to fight for my rights. I want to contend. And so often that response is an Ishmael. When God is saying, trust me, 
Won't you give this to me? Won't you continue to trust in me in faith? Look at verse 33. It says, even at that hour of the night, in the early hours of the morning, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. He became the hands of God caring for his children. Helen Rosevear spoke of God's care and goodness in the midst of her greatest suffering, writing this, through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so completely and suddenly I knew I knew, I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. Friends, sometimes the prison doors swing open and sometimes they stay closed. In both, God's power and love is revealed if we will just continue to trust in him. And so great is the the grace of God that even moments when our trust fails us, he remains trustworthy. When our faith fails us, he remains faithful. Maybe that's part of what Paul was thinking about when he wrote Romans 8, verse 28. And he says, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The psalmist, again, in Psalm 30, verse 5, says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God's vindication, his deliverance, his care, his love, his Emmanuel presence will come to us. Lastly, respond to moments or seasons of powerlessness by recognizing that it is a necessary part of God's redemptive story. In Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul shares with the believers who saw firsthand the sufferings that he endured together with Silas in that city. He said, I would give everything if only that I might know him, that I might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And then he says this, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Friends, that is a deeply challenging scripture. Of course, the sufferings of Christ were completed on the cross when he finished his work, but the gospel will spread through the continued sufferings of God's people. Paul and Silas understood that their powerlessness in that moment would never be wasted. And we know the story if you've read Acts 16 before. Um, And it's a story of every one of our stories of powerlessness that it ends with a redemptive narrative. In verse 27, it goes on and says, the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, and so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran into the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household and all who lived um, and they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized and he brought them into his house and set a meal before them and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let these men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said to you, said you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they've publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison. And we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. 
And when the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the house of Lydia. There they met with the believers, encouraged them once more, and then they left town. Commentators say that Paul's letter to the Philippian church, written a few years after this, is one of his happiest letters. What was birthed in pain produced a harvest of joy. I wonder if one of the reasons why we don't see more power in the spirit realm is because we're unwilling to embrace the partnership of powerlessness with the Holy Spirit. I look around the world and I see a mess in so many places. I see the evidence of the darkness that is all around us. And there's a part of me that wants to step back rather than step into it. But the example of Christ was that he stepped from heaven into the darkness and he became the light. And so he calls us to do the same. As Helen was finishing her story, she spoke about a moment when she was brought before this mock trial that called all the villagers, villagers to come out, these rebels, and, and they'd prime them that when she spoke her words of defense, that they would have shouted out in unison, liar, liar, liar. And she stood there before them, and the charges were brought against her, and, and she was supposed to mumble her defense, and she, she spoke so quietly in her nervousness, and, and they hit her in the face again with a butt rifle like this. And so to avoid the pain, she began to speak out loudly. And she waited for the cries of liar, liar to come out like this. And instead, somebody in this crowd said, this is our doctor. This is a good person. And the 800 villagers crowded around her and gathered to love her and protect her at that moment. The now 86-year-old Helen Bevere looked into the cameras as she gave this testimony. And she says this. She said, many, many came to the Lord through those days of suffering. My invitation to you and the invitation to me is a gospel one. It's to step into the power and the powerlessness of the gospel, not to allow the fear of what we don't know to keep us from what God has called us into. Can I pray with you, please? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we do not understand everything that goes on around us. We know that you are not the author of destruction. You're not the author of hate. You're not the author of violence. You're not the author of injustice. In fact, Lord, we thank you that your scepter is a scepter that rules on behalf of truth and justice and righteousness. But we thank you, Lord, that you are also a loving God who is working his plan of redemption out on the face of this earth today. And you gave us an incredible example in the life of your son, in the life of the saints that are recorded in the scripture, and in the life of saints like Helen Rosevia, Lord God. That we are called to this life of power in the spirit realm and powerlessness in the world. That through us, your redemptive story might be told again and again and again. And I pray, Lord God, that out of this time of chaos on this earth, out of this moment of pandemic, economic collapse, of corruption in governments, Lord God, of hatred and racism, that is, that is spilling over into um, protest and violence and confusion. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be able to say, like Helen, many, many came to the Lord through those days of suffering as we lean in, Lord God, into these moments of powerlessness and partnership with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.